We've talked a lot about things that could be done, but what about what is actually being done for the cause of space colonization? This week we have, as an honored guest, James Burke of the Mars Society. He's here to talk about the Mars Desert Research Station, MDRS, Crew 261, in which a team of would-be astronauts and entrepreneurs have made an emulation of a potential Mars base out in the Utah desert on a tiny budget. They've managed to put together an apparatus that permits them to answer questions about the relative practicality of going out in a spacesuit every day, what it's actually like living in confined conditions, and so on. We have this and so much more to talk about on this week's episode, first in the new season of the Nexus Aurora podcast. So in this episode of the Nexus Aurora podcast, we have on board James Burke from the Mars Society. Welcome aboard, James. Thanks for coming on with us. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a huge fan of Nexus Aurora, so to speak with you is a pleasure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, th thanks for coming on. We have a whole bunch to talk about, actually. We've, I mean, at last, we can have an actual collaboration that we can talk about on the show. Unfortunately, it's not a collaboration that we were able to fully do <laughs> as we're going to discuss. We'll get there. We'll get there. Let's. I'm. I'm excited for the conversation today, though. Yes, absolutely. Now we uh, we have so we we have two things which we wanted to really get uh, get into the MDRS system or the the MDRS experiments. Uh, so we we have a uh, uh, basically a an automated farming system uh, for the cultivation of you know useful plant life on the Martian surface. Although that's been uh, that's been put on hold, uh, potentially discontinued, but the the a lot of research has been done with that, and perhaps if that gets started up again, we might have something that we can actually send over to you. But the other thing that was supposed to be tested uh, for the benefit of the audience was a uh, a rover system for collect automated collection of samples. Uh, that really exists, and we've we we've sent that over. Unfortunately, we didn't get there in time, right? Yeah, it's on some loading dock in Salt Lake City, and we were trying to get it uh, delivered to the, the station while I was there for the last two weeks, and just w we're not able to make that happen, but we have the next crew commanded by Megan Kane is there now, and they're standing by to receive the rover whenever it gets there and to unbox it and to do some initial testing. But yeah, I was, I was really sad about that because... I really am a fan of the rover uh, that you guys have designed and built, the Scout rover. It was originally called the SSAM um, Scout Sample and Map rover, but um, it's like a, about the size of Sojourner, which is my favorite Mars rover. Sojourner from the Mars Pathfinder mission in 1997. That was really where I got my start in this field, is just watching that unfold and getting super excited about Mars um, when I was uh, just finishing up college. Um, so, uh, so yeah, anyway, uh, we'll get there. We'll get the rover tested out for you guys and hopefully get you some good data. And yeah, the farming system that Sam Ross was working on, um, you know, we were, we started talking about all the experiments we were going to do for our crew 261. Uh, we started talking to folks back in 2019. So pre pandemic, we were talking about, um, experiments and Sam and Cameron both applied to the, our call for experiments with their two projects and we selected both of them um, and uh, amongst other, you know, about 10 other experiments. And um, I was excited about the farm uh, farming ex experiment. It was the design of it was essentially going to be a single track of um, robotic apparatus that could care for monitor a row of crops 
the idea would be that you'd have a whole bunch of these to make a whole greenhouse and they could be up to a kilometer long. So you imagine like this big kilometer long greenhouse on Mars with like 30 to 50 tracks like this. That's basically what we were designing, starting with the prototype of one track for like, you know, five meters or something like that. And so I, I definitely think it's a it's still a great idea. I definitely would like to work on stuff like that. And I'm in a position now as being the executive director of the Mars Society where we can actually I can actually help facilitate us doing research themes like that in the during our field season. Absolutely. Yeah, this is uh, just the sort of thing that I'd like to see done. So my interest is typically in well, uh, sort of medium term stuff, maybe some short term stuff, but I, I really want to see a civilization get started outside of Earth's atmosphere. And so naturally, food production is an essential component of this. So uh, likewise, things like uh, algae, uh, the, the, the algae experiment, I, I'd like to talk about that as well, that, uh, that was done in the, uh, the, the, with, the, with the last MDRS. Uh, what, sorry, what's the nomenclature? So it's the, the, the last phase of experiments? So I was commander of Transatlantic Mars Crew 261. That was um, running from May 1st to May 13th. Um, so I just, so four days ago is when we ended. We're recording this on the 17th of May, 2023. So uh, I'm fresh off that mission and it was amazing. Like we had a fantastic crew and a fantastic mission and we packed in a lot during our two weeks there. Um, but yeah, one of the, uh, one of, uh, we actually had two different experiments that were related to spirulina, to blue-green algae. The first experiment we had was we worked with a company in Scotland called Algacraft to build a bio-photoreactor for algae production. Um, it's a brand new device that they designed and we helped them design and our team, our crew helped um, write some of the code that it works with. Um, that, that you, it uses to be fully automated. Um, our green hub officer, Cecile Renault, and our crew engineer, Julian Villamasson, they were working on this experiment the whole time we were there, making sure that it was up and running and active. And it's essentially uh, a device that keeps a colony of spirulina alive and allows it to grow. And we still have it running in the science dome right now, even though our mission is over. Our, the next crew that started after us, commanded by Megan Kane, is also doing a two-week mission. And at the end of their mission, I'm going to go back down to Utah. I'm in Seattle now, um, back home. But I'll go back down to Utah for the University Rover Challenge, and I'll be harvesting the rest of the spirulina from the reactor to see what the yield was. Um, we're very optimistic. This is essentially a precursor system for a closed loop life support system where you would uh, bioregenerative closed loop life support where you would use spirulina as a component of that technology and it could do things like produce oxygen or simply just you, the spirulina itself could be used as a food uh, additive uh, and and, and um, also uh, spirulina as a resource you know our second experiment we actually use spirulina in the greenhab to grow plants, to, to enhance the growth of existing tomato and basil and other plants. Um, that, it's well known that you can do that. It's well known that you can use spirulina as sort of a fertilizer 
or nutrient supplement for plants. But we were doing it. Um, we we're trying to do some new things with it, trying to really capture a lot of data. And one of the things we did in that second experiment, which is what's led by Cecile Renault as part of her UMONS PhD program at her university in Belgium, um, and it was called biostimulation. That was the name of her experiment. Um, the idea that you're taking spirulina and using it with existing plants to stimulate them to grow. We also were able, and I'm very proud of this, we were able to grow a tomato plant. We were get, able to get it to sprout and start growing in Martian regolith simulant, which was a first at the MDRS. This has been tried before and failed, and we did it. And we did it using spirulina. Um, that was the magic ingredient. And what was funny, what was awesome is we had um, three different soils we were doing this with. One was the Martian regolith simulant. Specifically, it is MMS-1, so Mojave Mars simulant. It was designed for the 2007 Phoenix mission by JPL, and it's sourced from the Mojave Desert, hence its name, Mojave Mars simulant 1. So we're using that. We also had a control, which was some normal just potting soil that you'd buy at a store to, to use in your garden. And then the third one was we went and got some Utah desert soil on EVA. So I took Cecile out twice to, these, to this location south of the Hab, about two clicks south. And we, she gathered soil in three or four different locations and cataloged that and tried to do this biostimulation experiment to grow plants, to grow the tomato seeds in that soil along with the Mars regolith and the control. And the results were the Mars regolith worked and the Utah soil didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that bodes well. <laughs> that bodes that well. Bodes very well for Mars, yes. Yes, now that, that, that's the thing. So um, I suppose actually that, that, that answered the first question that I had regarding this. Uh, in fact, so with, with algae, uh, I hear as far as its productivity goes, like uh, it, I, I've heard people criticize it as not being that, that actually that productive compared to uh, other like leafy greens, for instance. So the, the rate of, uh, you know, the, the rate of a, a accumulation of biomass uh, can be lower than alternatives. And of course, in the case of algae, you need large supplies of water. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you need to dissolve the nutrients that it requires to, to, to grow yeah. actually into the water. And so it's a good deal more complicated. Yeah, we had to use, we used distilled water. So our water was distilled. It was pure water. Um, and that's what we started with in the bio, in the photobioreactor to, to have the algae colony go. Um, we obviously we seeded the colony with some spirulina that we had procured. But um, in terms of the biostimulation experiment, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, well, I guess you're talking in general, like if you're thinking about what's a great plant to grow for food on Mars, obviously leafy greens is probably a better choice than algae, than, than spirulina. Also, it's going to just be tastier and the crew's going to want to eat it more than we I actually did try some spirulina on some rice. Um, it is, it was interesting. It didn't taste bad, but it had a kind of interesting texture and interesting aftertaste. Um, uh, so I'd probably pick leafy greens over that sitting here right now. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I had to eat spirulina, I'm sure it wouldn't be a problem. It's better than Mark Watney and just potatoes, right? So. <laughs> yes, but the, see, this is the thing. Now, if, if, you, if you have trouble getting a, uh, a, a conventional plant to grow, 
and you can speed up its growth with something like algae, which is difficult to stop growing. So uh, one of the major problems with aeroponics is you get algae invading it. So you, it's hard to stop the algae invading the uh, the aeroponics and so right. on. If you can, if you have then something more reliable like spirulina, which you can grow and use as a feedstock to help out uh, the plants that you want for other purposes, that's critically useful potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think a lot more work needs to be done in this area. It's surprising to me that our crew is the first one to do some of this in FDRS. Um, obviously, there's been other crews that have worked with spirulina. I'm not discounting their work, but it's it's not a widespread thing, and it should be like this. To me, this is like a key area for humans to Mars of of trying to get closed loop life support going and using innovative techniques like this that we've been talking about with blue green algae algae. Um, to grow plants. And I just think we, we all should be doing more of this in the analog research community. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, th this is the other thing. So my, uh, my instinct when it comes to life support was, uh, before, I, before I'd thought this through, uh, my instinct is always to go for a, uh, a, a machine as an option. Actually, I think, I think in the case of Mars, this is mentioned as well. Yes. So uh, Robert Zuber doesn't put it in these words, but, uh, you know, uh, the solar cell, perhaps you can get the, an efficiency of something like 20% without trying too hard. Yeah. If you try really hard, you know, maybe it goes up to like 40% or something, but now it's, it's the most expensive solar cell you can imagine. But 20% is not particularly difficult to manage. But whereas photosynthesis is only what, I mean, at best, it's like 25 3%, right. that kind of thing. But mo typically, it's like 1% yeah. efficiency. Yeah. So, th so the, the energy efficiency is typically lower. But in the case of using plants to scrub CO2 and indeed to produce oxygen, you don't need to worry so much about the, uh, the, the dangers that come from, well, for instance, if using the reverse water gas shift to try and pull oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere or recover oxygen, right? So you, you, you split up water into hydrogen and oxygen, that's the oxygen that you breathe. Then to scrub uh, carbon dioxide to get more, more oxygen in, you react that with your, your, your hydrogen again. Carbon monoxide is what you get out of it, which is deadly poisonous, right? So you have, to, you have to carefully throw the carbon monoxide out and deal with, uh, you know, deal with high temperature conditions and so on. Uh, that, now there's the transporting of the hydrogen outside the hab. Uh, so that there end up being more points of failure. So that on paper, it's perhaps more efficient. But uh, when you're around humans, uh, the, there are other things to consider as well. For instance, well, I mean, like the, the pleasantness of the, uh, the, the circumstances. So having green things growing is always nice versus a sterile mechanical environment. And, uh, and of course, uh, being able to use it, uh, like use the products that you get out of that complex hydrocarbons with other minerals and stuff uh, sequestered into them naturally, use that for fertilizer and indeed as a foodstuff. Like that's crucial and something that you can't get just from the, the direct approach. I mean, I, I, I'm an old school industrialist. I, yeah, I, I much prefer to solve all my problems with, uh, with, with high temperatures and with electricity and so on. But, but th this is refreshing, actually. Yeah, he, he and I actually, we had a conversation about all this yesterday, Robert Zubrin and I. And I was telling him about the spirulina experiments we just talked about. And, um, you know, what you just described are some of the chemical approaches to life support. So that it is easier. You're totally right. It is a lot easier and more straightforward to chemically produce oxygen and, and water and, and all the things you need uh, for a first crew on Mars. No, no doubt about that. I'm actually talking about long term, like we're going to settle Mars. We're going to send people there to live long term. And in that world, in that era, 
which I hope is soon. I hope is just as soon as the first crews going to Mars. Um, Bioregenerative closed loop life support would be highly useful in that era. And that's kind of what my vein of talking about spirulina and, um, you know, our, our photo bioreactor being a precursor to a closed loop life support system that would be bioregenerative, which again, by definition, bioregenerative approaches are less effective and, you know, the math is less favorable than traditional chemical approaches for these same problems. There's with any problem, there's multiple solutions. And one solution might work for one problem well, but then you have another wrinkle in another case. And, and if we're talking about sustaining human life long-term on Mars, then I think you, plants are going to be part of it. We're going to bring as much of the Earth's environment with us and create that as, as human beings because that's what we need to live. And so part of going to Mars as a settler instead of just a, as an explorer where I'm going to go there and back, Part of going to Mars as a settler is thinking like a Martian and thinking about how are we going to make this a home for humans long term, for generations beyond you and me. And so that's kind of the vein with which my crew was approaching our experiments. And a lot of the experiments that we did or that we attempted to do were about that long term vision of humans living on Mars comfortably. And I can tell you, our team, our team of seven professionals that were on my crew, we found it very comfortable to live at MDRS for two weeks. We could have lived there for six months the way we were living and, and been very happy. Um, and so um, it just, to me, it shows that we can do this. You know, all these problems are solvable. Yes. You know, I, uh, I like the spirit. I, 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 I think in exactly the same way. In fact, even if the problems aren't solvable in the short term, I'd still want to go and lay the groundwork for eventually when they can be solved because on paper, there is absolutely no reason that you can't put together, you know, many like multi-billion ton objects in which uh, you can simulate, well, whatever environment you please at whatever gravity level you please with O'Neill cylinders and so on. But, you know, uh, I think those are perhaps a, a little a little archaic, though I do like the idea. I'd get the material from somewhere else personally. But there's no reason in like on paper that you can't get that stuff to work so that even if in the near future space is going to be really quite hard. I, I still don't mind because the end goal can exist. There's no, there's no engineering reason, uh, no, no technical barrier that's you know uh, completely insurmountable that would stop us from getting to uh, an end goal eventually, which is desirable. But that's the other thing I uh, I wanted to talk about actually in the in the short term. So the I worry not so much about the technical stuff. The more I look at it, the more I think about it, the more solutions tend to show up. For the kinds of things that people object to as being very difficult to do in space. What I'm concerned about actually is marketing. I think the marketing for space is dangerous. So, you know, uh, you imagine th this is a nightmare scenario for me, right? You know, the, at 3, 3 a.m., you know, I, I wake up in a cold sweat and I'm like, um, what, what, what would we do if, for instance, you have a, a mission that goes to Mars and someone on, on, the, uh, on the mission, like it's a, it's a civilian thing, you know, there's, a, there's about a thousand people there, let's say. Someone goes along and they start like a video blog and they're like, uh, you know, on the way to Mars, uh, I can't believe that it smells this bad again, you know, because the, you know, <laughs> maybe if, if, it's, if it's outside of an uh, uh, artificial gravity zone of the, of the trip, you know, now uh, the, the tendency is for, especially in confined space and so on, the smell to get bad and they're just like, I just want to go home, et cetera, et cetera. 
and then that you know maybe that trends and then uh, I know if 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 all we can provide for people in the short term is uh, tough habitation, you know, like uh, really harsh environments, and uh, you know, like a, a, some, something that doesn't look aesthetic or compelling, and evidence of this is broadcast back to Earth. If that becomes in the public's mind the picture of what space has to be like forever, then that might damage our potential to get investment. That's what mm-hmm. bothers me. So the the the, the marketing yes. side of it, like. Um, how does it feel like so? So with with MDRS from from your perspective, are you so I, I'm presuming you you you're never allowed outside except when you're going through an artificial like a, a, an airlock simulant and you have to have a spacesuit on all the time and so on. Do do you get claustrophobic? I don't get claustrophobic. Um, and you're right. That is how we run the simulation protocol at MDRS. If we go outside the front door, the front airlock, we have to have our analog spacesuit on, and we plan those out. They're called EVAs. And we, that was, we did two EVAs a day, usually during our mission. We did 19 EVAs in total during our two-week mission. Um, and, but we also have the ability, because we have multiple buildings on campus, the main habitat, the science dome, the observatory. We have this small area called the RAM that's the uh, Chinook helicopter body that's been refurbished, and that's an engineering center. Nice. We have these all connected with tunnels that are pressurized, that are ostensibly pressurized in simulation. So we're able to actually walk between those in a shirt sleeve environment as we would on, as we would be able to do on Mars. Um, but, you know, we still were isolated in that campus within the campus and didn't leave for two weeks and didn't break sim. Um, but we were very comfortable, you know, and I would tell your friend that is worried about odor on the, the, the spacecraft. There's a product called tea tree oil that we used a lot. I have a tea tree oil foot spray and it kills odor and it smells very pleasant and you only need a little tiny bit of it. And I was, I washed my clothes with it as well. Um, so, so we, smell was not an issue with us. We were in a very confined area for set for 12 days, seven of us, and we were very comfortable. Tea tree oil. That, that's quite nice. I'd not heard of that actually. I, I, I like this kind of thing and uh, so, solutions, especially to, you know, Problems like this that don't involve, for instance, uh, uh, nanoscale aluminium powder, which is, right. you know, it's able to leach into your body and so on. You know, this is not good, right? No, no. This is a very, a very common essential oil. It's from the Australian tea tree uh, in southern Australia, I believe, and um, yeah, it's used in the United States as a. You know, people use it as a laundry supplement. Sometimes they have different, you know. I have a foot spray product. There's also like massage oils with it. So it's a great product because it, it smells really pleasant and it kills bacteria and odor. I, now, you know, it's, it's probably cliche to be like, well, I, I'll, I, I bet I'll just go out and get some of that. But now that you've mentioned it, I actually might go and get some of this. This <laughs> sounds amazing. This sounds like exactly the sort of thing I'm interested in. And my crew members from France also were not aware of this product. So they, I, I'm going to send them a... <laughs> Some of them when I send them some care packages soon. So yeah, I see. <laughs> well, yeah, see that that that's the kind that's the kind of innovation uh, that 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 I like to see, and and indeed the kind of thing that you can get out of doing uh, Mars simulant environments that otherwise doesn't appear on paper. This is the thing I want to get to. So I've done. Uh, my concerns are with uh, you know uh, how do we minimize the amount of costs associated with getting uh, you know per per kilogram getting stuff to the Martian surface uh, from the Earth. But it's very hard to, a lot of stuff gets lost in translation with this. It's hard to take into account the human factors that otherwise have to show up 
in experiments of the type that uh, your group has been doing. So that so uh, moving between the the different the different aspects of the base with the uh, you know ostensibly pressurized tunnels. Uh, do you have 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 you thought about uh, safety mechanisms and so on? Like in case there's a leak with one of them, are they are they able to close off? Or you know, do you have protocols yes, we, for this? What to do in the case of a leak? Each of the buildings has an airlock. Um, you know, so so if a, there was a tunnel breach, you'd get to the closest building and shut the airlock. And we actually, our crew, we actually did practice safety uh, quite a bit. We did um, training on emergency procedures on how to quickly remove the helmet and the backpack that we used uh, for our spacesuits. We did a couple of drills, safety drills. So we had one drill where people were out on EVA and one crew member got sick and was about to pass out and they had to help her get back to the HAB. And we did a second drill, which was on our last, the last full day of our mission, where the me, the commander, and my XO, we went out in a rover and we turned off our radio and we didn't go where we said we were going to go. And then we pushed a button on our Garmin device to send an SOS ping to, back to the HAB. And then we just sat back and waited and, and saw what and see what happened. And our crew was working so well together. They were they didn't know it was a drill. They were immediately concerned. They immediately rallied. About five minutes after I pushed the SOS ping, we heard a drone circling our position, looking for us. And then they arrived in 20 minutes. Um, and we were two kilometers from the HAB. So we were very, my XO and I were very proud of our crew for rallying. Um, it was a little stressful for them, not going to lie. They were, you know, one of my crew said some words, uh, used some prof uh, profanity uh, when she realized it was a drill, but, <laughs> but it was all in good fun. It was all, you know, it was all because we knew they were ready for a situation like that. We knew they would do well. We were prepared to be out there for multiple hours if we needed to be. Um, but they, you know, 20 minutes, that was huge. And uh, so proud of those people. Yeah, I mean, this is excellent stuff. I, I'd love to try some of this stuff out myself, actually. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I could take part in one of these things. How, how hard is it to apply for something like this for the audience at home? Yeah, we actually have uh, the ability for anyone to apply to be part of the Mars Desert Research Station program. They can apply individually or they can apply as a crew. And we are scheduling out right now the field season that's going to start in the fall of 2024 and go on into the spring of 2025. Our field seasons run from October through May in Utah. We shut down for the summer because it's quite hot there in the summer. Um, but uh, so right now we're about to finish this field season. There's one more crew remaining. They're in sim now. And then we have the University Rover Challenge. And then we'll start back up again in October this year. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Anyone, should, anyone can apply and, and anyone listening to these words should apply if you're interested. We'd love to have you be part of the program. Oh well, I mean, th th this is good actually, and uh, there must be there must be something else, something like this that can be done in other contexts. So I have, a, I, I can answer that. Uh, we actually have a virtual reality project that people can check out. We've created a digital twin of our research station's campus and two square kilometers of terrain, and so that's available for free uh, using a VR headset. You also, we also have a version that works just with a browser. Um, you can do it on your phone as well. And if you just go to marsvr.com, you can access those different applications. But the version that works in a, a headset 
We've been working on that for six years and it has a high fidelity version of the campus, all the buildings inside and out, objects inside the buildings. And we've put in the crew training that we do. So procedures like how to put on a spacesuit, what are all the steps to do that? How to find um, your way around a kitchen? You know, there's actually people that come to our analog research station that don't know basics of how to cook. And so we kind of put some of that training in the, the VR app, as well as how to acclimate yourself in the science dome, which is a little lab that we can do d different types of biological, geological experiments and all the equipments there to do those. Um, and then our green hub where we can grow plants and you can learn how to take care of a cherry tomato plant and fertilize it in the VR app. And so, um, so that's really something that's exciting. Uh, we, I've been working on that for six years and it's been a project that we've been able to show at different events, to talk to people about the possibility of humans to Mars. Um, and the, the version that we are working on now is a version that's a multi-user environment where we could actually have multiple crew members in there and plan out our EVAs in advance because we can have the map view of that two square kilometers of terrain and and look at the different landforms and decide where we want to go together in VR. We don't even have to be in the same room. We can be all around, all over the world uh, experiencing that, that environment together on our individual headsets. Um, but we also have the ability through some devices we tested out called Mesh-tastic devices to actually have a crew member out on the out in the field as part of that as well. You can actually have a crew member out exploring that area of Utah and we can have direct support of them in the VR app. And so we call that concept crowd exploring where you're having, you're leveraging the ability for people to use VR from their home to help you explore Mars. And wouldn't that be great? Like someday when the first crews are on Mars, they're able to scan the area that they land in and it's put into a VR environment and millions of people back on earth could help help them explore could like vote on interesting areas that they see. Maybe they see a possible fossil somewhere and everyone's like, go, go check that out. And then the astronauts actually go do it for real on Mars. Like that's the, that's the vision we have for this project. And that's what we want to demonstrate more of in Utah. That's extremely impressive. Uh, I've not tried it myself. Unfortunately, I, I, uh, <laughs> I get nausea whenever I use VR, but the, the concept there is very powerful potentially, especially, you know, uh, the, looking for fossils and things like this, for example, I mean, it, it's rather difficult, like, uh, even on Earth, when you, when you try and do this, and we're, we're completely surrounded by, uh, by, by living things, you know, you, you go looking for them, even at uh, cliff faces where, where these are exposed. There, there are a few uh, relatively near where I live. It's, it's no easy task. You need a lot of eyes on site, or a lot of eyes on site are immensely beneficial, so that if you have something like this, uh, good quality analysis, of the data that you're being, you're, you're able to send back, this might translate to some really good results potentially. So, I mean, that's quite impressive like, being able to put that together. Yeah, and we we for our EVAs we did on, uh, during our mission that I just finished, we actually did have the capability to monitor the crew members out in the field. Now we were we were not using Mesh Tastic to do that, although we had Mesh Tastic devices and we were recording data with them. We, all, we also had these Garmin devices, so just off-the-shelf commercial Garmin in-reach devices that we could use to not only find out where we were when we were out on EVA, we, we would have the coordinates of our position. So we could use that in our map, our EVA map, to, to, to determine exactly where we were with a high degree of accuracy. We also had a way for, back in the hab, the people on the radio that were supporting us out on EVA, 
they would actually have on a web page the map and our position. That was thanks to some work that our crew engineer did, or Julian Villamason did, to uh, make that Garmin data available on the map, on the Google map, it's essentially a mashup of Google maps and our EVA map and the Garmin data. And what that did for us, for the first time, uh, an MDR, an, a crew out at MDRS had the ability to locate where all the crew members were on EVA without the radio. And the radios have usually been the primary way that we keep crew safe. But there's a lot of places out there, as soon as you go past some of the large sand dune landforms, there's no radio comms. And so for our, for our mission, we were in contact with the crew using our Garmin devices, and we knew they were safe the entire mission, even though even the safety drill where my XO and I turned our radios off, we didn't start the Garmin tracking either, even though we were reminded to multiple times, we just didn't do it because we were trying to make this a little harder than it would have been otherwise for them. But we did, they did ultimately find us and uh, using the drone and using some of the Garmin last position data that was delayed. So um, mm -hmm. it's a safety thing. Like it's, it's something we've been able to supplement. Our crews demonstrated the ability to supplement the radio with these Garmin devices. And later on, it'll be the Meshtastic open source devices that are not satellite based, that are just a, a low power radio but if we have enough of those out there, they can form an ad hoc mesh network and get the data all the way back to the hub through that network. And that's the goal, is, is that we'd have the operational capability to use Meshtastic for future crews. And it would tie in with the VR app so they could not only plan their EVA using VR the night before, all together, the lower deck of the hub with VR headsets on, in the same room talking to each other, just like the JPL scientists plan out where the rovers are going to go with Microsoft HoloLenses, and I've seen that in action. Um, this would be our crews planning our, their EVAs out and then going and doing them and, and, and having the ability for the person on Habcom to, you know, the person that's sort of uh, in the hab, not on EVA, but supporting them, they can put on a VR headset and see exactly where they are, explore along with them, walk alongside them in VR, and have full radio communication if that's available. Um, so that's the vision we're trying to get to with these technologies. And there's a lot of awesome volunteers working on this for us. The Chicago chapter of the Mars Society is the lead for the EVA link system that uses the Meshtastic. And the uh, Mars VR project, which is headquartered in Seattle, where I live, um, is working on the VR side of it. And that's with our partner, Jeff Rayner and Mixed Reality, his company. So a lot of people working on this. We're really excited that it's coming together. And we hope that future crews at the MDRS will have benefited these technologies. Yes, that's excellent. I've, I mean, it, it's immediately obvious how you could how you could make use of such things, especially for even even in other fields, like for instance, uh, in space construction, like free, putting something together in free space. You could imagine this being essential, and for coordinating uh, uh, unmanned vehicles and so on, like you know, uh, fly by wire. Uh, What's the what's the word for that? Remote controlling uh, particular drones to do teleoperation. Yeah, teleoperation. There we go. Yes, of course. Right. Uh, very popular with the moon, for instance. Suggestions for what to do with mm -hmm. the moon. Uh, now, you know, if you you combine that with a uh, a, a network of radios to tell where everything is, and suddenly you you have a uh, uh, an ongoing picture building about the terrain in which you're operating, that becomes. A, a, immensely powerful and that people at home can interact with in such a way where now you can crowdsource uh, identification of fossils but also perhaps there's things like resource veins and so on so 
you know, uh, there's there's the gypsum occasionally that they fight. What's blatantly gypsum, right? Yeah. Uh, as as evidence of all, of water and so on. I I don't I don't care too much for gypsum because calcium really likes its sulfate group, <laughs> calcium sulfate. So it's very hard to actually get the calcium out. I much prefer magnesium sulfate, which we think is a uh, a common component of a lot of Martian soil as a, a source for sulfuric acid, with which you can do an enormous number of uh, industrial ac- activities. Again, this is this is more my field. Mm-hmm. But now you can imagine being in a position where uh, clues about the locations of particular veins of resources or suggestions that there might be things around. So for instance, collapsed lava tubes, I suppose they're easy enough to see from space and to map out, but uh, more subtle te- uh, terrain features, it would really benefit from uh, having, having the involvement of large numbers of people at home who have a, at least, you know, who, who are taught a cursory knowledge of what to look for. Like, you know, if you had 10,000 people with, with eyes on site, really analyzing uh, you know, just looking for every 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 scrap of terrain data that's given out, uh, you might be able to pick up some things. That otherwise, you know, a a team of even a hundred really good geologists uh, working at NASA would not be able to see. So this is this is groundbreaking stuff. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you feel the same way. I also agree with everything you just said. I think that having the power of the general public harnessed to do science is 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 what is this is all about. And there's a lot of I think discoveries that can be made by citizen scientists on Mars. Hmm. Now, this is not the, the full vision that I have for the future. This, this, for me, this is sort of uh, near-term stuff, but it doesn't, it doesn't solve the major problem that I, uh, that, that I want solved with, with space travel, which I, I want to create. I, I imagine creating a way of life that's, uh, that's more involved, more fulfilling than what is otherwise available on Earth, I, a, a life of adventure for people. But this requires perhaps, uh, well, it, it requires a better conception of what life on Mars would actually be like at, at different stages of development. It also requires new technologies to be developed and so on, and uh, you know, mass, the entire industries to be built from scratch, basically. So we have, uh, uh, we have other things that were done at MDRS that I also find interesting that could uh, help out in this. But uh, so the, the, you have a, a wind-powered drone. I'm very interested in the uh, in, in whether or not whether or not that can be made to work with obviously the lower uh, low atmospheric pressure on the Martian surface. Uh, but you know, higher wind speeds. So I think um, you know, back of the envelope, it looked like maybe a tenth of the wind forces that you can get every day on Earth. That sort of thing, because the the atmosphere is thin, thinner, but the wind speeds are higher. Uh, you know, things like this could be extremely useful for actually putting putting stuff together and uh you know like i i i, I imagine fleets of uh, industrial drones being used to uh to get resources over the over the uh the martian surface uh but more than this eventually if we could get a large amounts of material together if we were in a position where we're making hundreds of thousands if not millions of tons of uh high quality steel for instance a year and uh i i, I tend to go with magnesium actually for uh for as, as a conductor of heat and of electricity because it's cheaper to make, uh, for instance, via the pigeon process than aluminium. Actually, getting pure, high purity aluminium is a real pain. Uh, magnesium is a lot cheaper. Uh, I reckon that's a, that's a good place to go. If you had these things, what do you envisage life being actually like? Like for a for 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 a Martian colony that you can really call a Martian colony, not just like a, a few astronauts, but a colony that's big enough that it's it's so big 
uh, there's not really that much point in having attention from home because there are tens of thousands of people there already. Like, is it going to be uh, a series of rovers moving across the Martian surface and exploring and uh, you know, making use of mineral veins that they have easy access to and looking for a place maybe to put a large city? Would it be a, a, a large cityscape, you know, the, the, like a, um, uh, one big enclosed habitat or a series of smaller enclosed habitats? What, what's the picture that you see when you think of the future of Mars? No, these are all great questions, and there's a lot of concepts and work that's been done to answer this. We actually did a, a city-state design contest for a one-million-person settlement, and Nexus Aurora won that, and there's a whole book we published with a lot of the different concepts. But you're, you're hitting it right. Like, how, what is that going to look like? I think you're definitely going to have use of lava tubes. Like, on early settlements, you're going to want to be underground because you're going to want to have the radiation protection. And lava tubes are a great, easy way to construct an underground base with not a lot of effort. Um, there definitely will be a need to have above-surface portions of that settlement and having the domes we all, always see in artistic renderings of Mars settlements. I think that's a component of it, but I do think there's going to be a lot of pressurized space underground that a large settlement would, would have. And I think to answer your question of what it's going to be like to live there, I think, you know, you're going to have a pioneer culture. You're going to have a very technical, scientific culture there where folks are very smart, where there's a lot of innovation happening, a lot of inventions being created, a lot of new processes of living and working being done, being practiced. And I think the Mars early, the Mars early settlements will be exporting ideas back to Earth. Not and, and, and IP and technologies back to Earth because it'll be a place where there's you literally have to make sure the systems are all working correctly for your own survival and are robust. And so there's going to be a lot of innovation and R&D done to make sure that everything is optimized well. And that's honestly, that's how we lived for the two weeks. We were constantly trying to improve how we were monitoring the solar panel system, the, the power system. We were constantly improving that. We were constantly trying to monitor our water, our water usage and make sure that we were on trend to not run out of water by the end of our mission. That was very important to our crew and we were successful at, at conserving water and staying on the trend line, almost exactly on the trend line, by the way, that we had. Um, and also making our own, you know, our own operations and our own processes as crew members better communicating well with each other. We spent time early on in the mission just stopping and talking about communication and how not to interrupt each other and how to effectively communicate over the radios. Um, we had four crew members where English was not their native language. They were French. And so they had thick French accents. They all spoke English, but there were times when I didn't understand. Like when my medical officer told me that one of our crew members has hypothermia, I didn't know what she meant. And she was talking about hyperthermia, um, heat stroke, essentially. And so just communication and getting better at that was something that was a focus of ours. And by the end of the mission, our team was working so well together. They were high performing. And it was sad that the mission was over. Mm. We could have kept going. Indeed. Like, so uh, the, the lava tubes thing as well, I've been thinking a lot about this, like uh, as, as, a, as a way of getting food, but also uh, a, a new environment that's pleasant to explore. 
uh, if you if instead of pressurizing that with uh, breathable air, you know, you you can imagine grabbing a lava tube and then filling it with with water instead. Like if you if you have access to say a uh, a glacier, otherwise you're able to get large amounts of water on the Martian surface. And then you you know feeding perhaps tilapia or something. If you have like a whole bunch of tilapia, the majority of the biomass that they get fed is produced above ground. You know perhaps with mushrooms, although the spores apparently are horrid. They just get everywhere when you try and when you try and grow mushrooms as a as a food stuff. Uh, but you know it, obviously where the sunlight is now, you can you can sequester that in the form of uh, cellulose and lignin mostly in you know, in in green plants. Feed it to the mushrooms. You feed the mushrooms to. The, uh, the the fish and then you eat the fish something like this you can imagine putting something like that yeah. together so that kind of picture the the lava tube picture i suppose is also compelling uh, as as a you know like a, a a nice place to be and somewhere where you can you can explore actually if i'm honest uh talking communications things like this obviously this makes perfect sense for especially the early stages putting things together and uh, being able to run what, run a colony somewhere in in a way that no one has ever done before, like a, a colony out on another world. But eventually, you want I I I envisage space as a a, a place where you can you can you can have time alone. So this is the I think a, a lot of my audience probably feels this way, especially with talk about the the VR technology that you previously mentioned. Obviously, the power of that potentially, if you like, you harness that in the right way. And for a very small amount of initial investment, you have enormous power uh, to to explore the Martian landscape and to make use of it. But it means potentially, uh, if you if you don't handle that correctly, you could see situations in which no one ever has any privacy, or you have to have places that are locked off for privacy. You know, just your just your bunk, like your, your just your your bedroom or something, and that's it. You can imagine situations where you know good arguments could be made for this, or perhaps not even this, as being the uh, the, the 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 domain of your 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 personal space. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I I feel like the uh, the the real call of space exploration is uh, like it, it requires and, and and technical thinking as well requires a lot of uh, alone time, a lot of space where you can well where you can communicate badly, perhaps. Where you can, uh, you know, I won't say use profanities, but it's the you know, where, where you have uh, a freedom of speech that perhaps is not suited to a, uh, a small team doing a doing a very difficult task. But I, I, I feel like the eventual goal should be something like this, like a kind of freedom that the that the infinite possibility of the universe can provide for us. That you know that that an enormous empty surface in the case of Mars ought to be able to provide. But the the question of how to actually get that. And whether it makes sense to get that in light of, of course, what you've talked about, the, um, the, the, the dangers that come from uh, not communicating properly when you, you, a miscommunication leads to a life or death circumstance, right? When, you're, when you're, you're making a colony for the first time on the Martian surface, at, you know, at the sorts of stages where, which we're likely to see in our lifetimes, you know, when it's just the first few tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people at best, uh, at, at these stages, and in any case, these stages... Presumably, they'll 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 fix in the public uh, vision what a Mars colony should look like and what it will look like going forwards. Is it possible at this sort of stage to have uh, to have something of the freedom, perhaps that you that might characterize, say, the the life of an intellectual maybe two hundred and fifty years ago, say, uh, like a European or maybe um, Leonardo da Vinci or something like this. This sort of um, the, the the space for ideas that comes from I, I won't say 
isolating yourself from people, that's not quite it, but it's a, 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 an open space for ideas. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I, I absolutely believe that you're going to have that on Mars. And number one, I believe, I don't want to get too political here, but privacy is a human right. And it was very important for me and my crew that we all had the ability to go in our stateroom and shut the door if we needed to and not, and not be disturbed. That was a rule we had. If the door's all the way shut, you respect people's privacy um, no matter what time of the day it is. And, um, and I think that's important. I think everyone needs that for just basic safety and sanity. Um, there's times where you get emotionally overwhelmed and you just want to be by yourself. I mean, I know that happens to me once in a while. And also just having the ability for you to feel safe um, if you're having a disagreement with a crew member and you don't want to talk to them for a little bit, that you're, you're able to do that safely and, and respectfully to each other. Um, you know, you talked about freedom. I think when the crew, a crew is alone on Mars by themselves, there's a lot of inherent freedom they're going to feel in that situation. But, you know, my country, the United States of America, you know, obviously freedom is, is a big ideal and value of ours. And having personal freedom, the freedom to make your own decisions, uh, in some cases right or wrong, is something that we're big on. And I do think that that spirit is what the, the Mars colonists will have is, you know, we're, we're, we're leaving Earth, we're going to live on Mars, and we're going to live on Mars the way we want to live on Mars. And it's not going to be mission control that's telling us what to do. It's going to be mission support helping us do what we want to do. You know, it's a key difference, a key distinction that we try to have at the MDRS program as well. And so um, the idea of having personal liberty, personal freedom and scientific liberty, you know, ability to study whatever you want to study. You know, sometimes even in America, that's not always the case at NASA, for example. You know, when I was when I was coming up in, in the 90s, people weren't allowed to work on Humans to Mars because we were ha we had a robotic program then. and that was supposed to be the focus. And they also couldn't work on going back to the moon because that wasn't an approved program either. And certainly that's changed now. And, and now NASA scientists can work on both things, which is great. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, the ability to, to work on what you want to work on and, um, and go as deep as you want to go, like that's to me a human right that we should have. Absolutely. Yeah. I, again, uh, I feel the same way. And I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not a citizen of the United States, and uh, th things are a little bit different in Britain. Obviously, the, the, language, the language is more or less exactly the same, completely mutually intelligible. Uh, but there, there, are, there are social differences of, uh, of various kinds, you know, may, may, many of them sort of entertaining, you know, like the obsession with gardening in the, in the UK and so on, right? <laughs> but I don't know. Um, still, the, the, the spirit of the Mars Society, I think, is probably closer to mine. I, I, I've joked before, uh, Robert Zubin is my spirit animal. <laughs> right, right. But like, I mean, this, this sort of thing, like uh, what, you, what you describe, I think that's much closer to uh, my, 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 my founding vision sort of for the, the future, that, that kind of thing. The, um, uh, the, the ability that comes, the, uh, the potential that comes from harnessing human freedom, like, that's extremely compelling to me. And I, I think you're right, like a lot of the uh, a lot of the culture, especially that comes around human uh, space exploration, ha has has its roots in uh, in the United States. Like so, a, a lot of the the best work is coming from the United States. I know. Um, uh, apparently, it is uh, controversial to say so. I've been I've been told this, 
But uh, SpaceX's Starship is just an amazing piece of technology, and clearly, it's it's the right thing to use to get to uh, to get around in the solar system. So we have this uh, out of the states. We also have, I mean, uh, a lot of the a lot of the technology that's required to do it has come from the states as well. So uh, that that's quite exciting. It's, it's a shame that I've, I'm I'm not American, so uh, it's not it's not the the natural organization for me to join the the Mars Society, but. I really like you guys. I, I like the spirit. Well, we are we are a global organization, uh, Phil, and and you know we have ch- we have a chapter in the UK. We have a chapter in France. Um, we have chapters in forty countries uh, around the world, and you know we're headquartered in the US, and certainly we have chapters in the US. And I'm American, but it doesn't. You know, we have I, I work with people from all over the world of all races, backgrounds, genders, and we're the Mars Society. That's what we are. We're a movement of human beings working together internationally to get humans to Mars. And we'd love for you to be part of us. Absolutely. I, I, so I've joined up as a member, in fact, uh, of the Mars Society and, and applied to be a, a Mars ambassador that I've not heard back yet. But never mind. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, I suppose, like, th- thinking, thinking of the Mars Society as a global force, I mean, that's, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to attend the meetings. That's the major thing. Hard to go there in person. That's the, but, but I suppose... I, I could. Uh, the other restriction, of course, is working with with NASA. So s- still with NASA and with uh, with SpaceX, you can't. Sure. Uh, if you're a foreign national, you can't use the. Right, but we we don't work directly with NASA and SpaceX. Although we're we're certainly cheerleaders of everything SpaceX is doing. And Elon, you know, Elon was part of the Mars Society briefly in the in the early 2000s, and famously, Robert Zubrin tried to talk him out of starting SpaceX, which he did not <laughs> listen to, and. We're very glad that he didn't listen to Robert back then. Robert was worried about Elon wasting his fortune, just like Andrew Beal, another billionaire, had just done in the 90s. But the difference between Andrew Beal and Elon Musk is that Elon Musk taught himself rocket science and is just an amazing individual all around. Um, A little little too focused on Twitter right now for my personal taste, but um, I do understand what he's doing there. and, And it is useful, I think, to have a a social media network that has human freedom and, you know, cutting edge technology and can do more than just share photos. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, like I said, the Mars Society, we are, we are a global organization. We want to be a global force to settle Mars. And um, we want we invite everyone that can hear the sound of my voice around the world to join us. And, and hmm. we, we, we do have an annual conference you mentioned, you know, attending the meetings is hard. Um, we actually do have a virtual option for that. We actually have an online community that we're working on rolling out on using Mighty Networks that um, is coming very soon and we'll have that available for the conference this year. So there are ways to connect with others of like mind and spirit uh, virtually, even if you can't travel to America to come to our conference. Yeah, again, this is quite compelling. I was uh, I was actually part of the 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 Slack server uh, that was set up for one of the uh, the Mars Society conferences a few years back. Yes, uh, I is is that is that still going? Did that is that switching it's, over it's to? It's still up and running, but it's not very active. And um, what what we're trying to hope with the new system, Mighty, that we're about to move to, which is very similar, but also could do events and talks and and classes. You know, online, it's got a learning management system built into it. We're hoping to do a lot more content and community building in that system than we did in Slack. Slack was mostly used for volunteer coordination. And so it was for the general membership, it was pretty quiet. You know, once in a while, there'd be someone throw out a link or whatever. 
Um, but we were mostly using it sort of under the covers to talk to volunteers. And that wasn't always visible to everyone else. But the new system is going to be basically like our own social media network. There's going to be an app. There's going to be lots of different sub communities that are very active. And we're going to move a lot of our efforts that we're doing outside of tools like that into that tool. So we're really hopeful mm -hmm. that that is going to be a, a really way to galvanize our members worldwide to work together, much like Nexus Aurora has done a fantastic job doing. I mean, I sit back and watch you guys and I'm amazed at what you guys have accomplished in the short few years you've been in existence. Um, you know, Nexus Aurora is an amazing organization. Yes, thank you. Uh, I, I, I was going to say this is very similar to what Nexus Aurora at least has, has tried to put together uh, themselves. And the British Interplanetary Society uh, is at the moment trialing a, a Discord server, mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps will uh, they're thinking of setting something like that up uh, in the in the coming months uh, to go with their their 90th anniversary. That's fantastic. Uh, later on this year, yeah, Discord's another one. Like we also have a Discord server. We actually have several. And I don't know. For me personally, Discord is not a great fit for how I work. There's a lot of like just random stuff that happens for me in there. And it might just be me because I'm a public person and a lot of people are always trying to contact me. But for me, it was hard. It's hard to use that as a tool for day-to-day -to -day work. Um, we did use it for our mission. We actually had a Discord relay server for the radios. So we were able to use our normal radios out in Utah, but then folks could actually listen in on the radio channel because we had a bridge. Um, using an iMac and a radio and a cable to one of the radios and, and, and Discord. So that was really cool. We were able to record our EVAs through Discord and we're going to stitch them together and make some videos that have all of our drone footage and photos we took and the mesh-tastic data to, to see the actual traverses we each of the crew members did. So we're really excited about that. But Discord, you know, was a little useful, but as a community, it takes a lot of like caring and feeding and watering, you know, to use a metaphor we've already, or something we've already talked about on this podcast, um, to, to really make that a good community. And, and I think, yeah, Nexus Aurora's Discord, I remember when it was getting going and seeing it evolve is an excellent example of a well-maintained community, which the Mars Society, unfortunately, doesn't have for Discord right now. But we are, again, we are hoping to roll out a new, a new tool using Mighty Networks, and we're really excited about that. Yes. Uh, again, trying to trying to start something like this up is actually surprisingly difficult in in my experiences. Yes. Uh, but Nexus World has been able to, to his credit, really do quite well with this. Like they, uh, questions of moderation and so on. Uh, you know, the the creation of uh, particular spaces where different kinds of discussions can take place, and uh, you know, not have people talking over each other. Uh, making sure everyone's everyone's keeping up with uh, you know the general the general situations of what what's going on with the various projects that next Aurora does, but also at the same time um, giving uh, giving regular meetings and uh, coordination uh, like helping helping people coordinate basically for each each of their projects like uh, through those meetings like through you know uh, uh, Discord uh, vo voice meetings like. It's been able to really fit together quite well. It's, it's quite impressive what uh, what what we've been able to do there. Uh, but then, but the the, uh, the the mighty networks thing that you you mentioned that that's quite exciting. Is there a uh, is there a place people can go for that? Would it be 
Like, so I'm, I think I'm, it's not available yet. We are working on it. Um, We just got it going recently. um, And we're we're having an internal pilot with our marketing and IT volunteers to set everything up. So I would say probably in the next month or two, certainly by like July, we'll have it available. And it'll also be the virtual option for our conference this year in October. So it's the, you you go to the Mars Society website and there'll be links to it there and everything. If if you join the Mars Society today, we will make sure you know all about it early and you're in there before the general public is. So join the Mars Society to get the latest on that. But it will eventually be prominent on our website. Excellent. And naturally, I'll I'll jump in the the second it's available, right? (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So very good. Uh, the, in, in in which case, uh, going then on to onto drones. That's the other. That's another major thing I'd like to talk to you about. Yes. So I, I'd love to talk about my crew member Aaron Kennedy's experiment, which is Atmos Binder. So this was a wind-powered Mars exploration rover. Um, it was essentially a wheel with two sails on it on each side of the of the diameter of the wheel. Um, and, and, and she designed this experiment herself. She, des- she built it herself from 3D printed parts. Um, and she designed the electronics for it, which was a, a printed circuit board that she ordered, that she designed herself. And she wrote all the code, which was, I believe, C++ code. Um, she was not using ROS or, you know, Raspbian. Uh, she wrote it native to the firmware of the processor. And so this was a really amazing engineering feat that, that, that I witnessed, where this young woman from Canada built her Mars Exploration Rover prototype and tested it out on six different EVAs that we did. So she had her suit on, she had all of her engineering gear, her, her, um, she had a small tablet computer out there in the field with her, and she was putting the rover through its paces. She was testing the servos, she was testing the sails, and how they would capture wind. We were fortunate to be blessed by some heavy wind gusts that were happening in the afternoons and evenings when we were in Utah. And so we took full advantage of that with this rover testing regime. And she accomplished everything she wanted to accomplish. She was able to successfully demonstrate the system, which is designed, I should back up, it's designed to be used on Mars to search the southern latitudes of Mars for CO2 geysers that have never been photographed, but that we know exist due to the seismic activity in the South Pole region of Mars. The idea would be you would drop a rover like this in the South Pole and it would blow around like tumbleweed for a year or longer trying to find these CO2 jets and capture them on video. Um, And she had all kinds of experiment payload to measure the wind, to measure the position of the rover, the position of all of its servos and motors. And um, yeah, it was just an amazing experiment. And, and I'm, I, I think the world of Erin Kennedy, she's a genius. She's one of the best engineers I've ever witnessed working on robotics. And she did everything from designing and building it to writing the code and, and making it all work and testing it out like a champ as well. So, um, so yeah, that was a cool project. That was a really cool project. That that's actually really impressive. <laughs> that's incredible, actually. Uh, I, wow. So, with that as the uh, as the intended use, obviously, 
there are a lot of advantages to having it wind powered, say, as compared to uh, solar powered. Obviously, there it's easier yes. to steer. But at the South Pole, can you guarantee that there's going to be sunlight available to charge it up? And then if you don't have batteries, you don't have solar cells and so on now. It's, right. Yeah, you have your, your duration of operation could be greatly extended. Exactly. And she had it working where the, it, there were batteries on board and they would have been regenerated by the movement of the rover, or the movement of the wheel. That's incredible. So you, it, was, it was, in effect, a wind-powered exploration rover that you could put on Mars and it would do the job. And now she's going to try to get an internship at JPL and we're going to, we're going to send her a letter, them a letter of recommendation on our behalf of the Mars Society. And hopefully someday we'll see her, her experiment work on Mars. I would love to see that. that. I mean, that it sounds like a really good idea. I think there's a pretty reasonable chance, though, for what you've just explained. But yes, so uh, I mean, that, that, that answers quite a lot of questions that I would have had regarding uh, wind propulsion and so on. Like, I, Obviously, I've contemplated in the past, uh, again, my, my interest is more sort of midterm, so uh, moving stuff across the Martian surface using dirigibles. But of course, yes. everyone tries the dirigible thing, right? But Sure. Those are just so hard to work with for lots of reasons and just yeah. risky and, you know, people always evoke the Hindenburg and it's right and rightly so because you're dealing, you're usually dealing with either helium or hydrogen and, those, you know, hydrogen is very flammable and it's just, I don't know, this, that kind of system to me is just kind of, I don't know, it's, there's so many better choices in our era than going back to the early days of aviation with, with dirigibles. Um, Let's talk about power, though. Like that was a focus of ours too at the base. We have a solar array and a battery system, and we use a diesel generator as backup. And obviously, power is critical on Mars. If you don't have power, you don't have life support. You know, you don't have you don't have comms. You need power for even things like governance. Like one of the experiments we wanted to do was have the Marscoin blockchain have a node at the hab. And we would be able to use it to do inventory, save data into the blockchain so it's immutable, but also we could use it for a voting application and we can actually do e-governance of our small colony on Mars, the seven of us. You know, I, I threw out the scenario to my crew, you know, you guys think I'm a great commander and you respect me, but what if you didn't? What if I was a tyrant and we, were, we weren't on Mars for two weeks, we were on Mars for 18 months. You know, and like, what would we do? Well, we would have a vote and we would, should James be retained as commander? Yes, no, or abstain. And I would lose. And then we would trigger another vote of like, let's nominate someone else to be the commander. And does that, is that person confirmed to be commander? Yes, no, abstain. Um, we were going to try that out. We were going to try out a voting system like that, which is part of the Marscoin wallet. It's called the MartianRepublic.org is the wallet that has some just experimental e-government stuff in it now. But um, we couldn't run that experiment because our power system would go out once a day. And we had a server. We, I, was, I was intending to have a file server running the whole time we were there. It was, it's a Synology NAS file server with a Ubuntu VM on board. And we would have the Marscoin node and we would have some other things on there. And I set up hybrid cloud so you could copy a file onto the share and it would immediately get saved up to a, a cloud instance. So people all over the world could have accessed our files from the cloud instance in almost real time without hitting the server that's at the station. 
But the problem was the server kept going down because the power system kept going down. So you need reliable power to have governance on Mars was the key insight there. And um, we worked we we'd worked extensively on monitoring that system and adding some new technology to monitor it. But it's it's an imperfect system, and I think a Mars colony would need twenty four seven mission critical power available with multiple redundancies to 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 exist. And that's what we're going to eventually get the MDRS up to. Is essentially we're not going to have it, but we would simulate having a small nuclear reactor. Uh, that that would always be on, um, and and I think we're probably going to simulate that in Utah using wind, because we have lots of wind there, and there's wind turbines. There's a lot of new technology for wind turbines where you have smaller form factors and you know kilowatt or larger sized loads that they can produce, and so um, uh, we actually uh, are are talking about. Could we add in a wind turbine or two or three to supplement the solar array and also make, make maybe make the battery system a little bit more robust so that it doesn't um, so that it can it can run the station off its load for you know a day or two if, if needed right now it's just a few hours of battery capacity we would have if we lost everything um, so usually we, we would we switch on the generator at night when the solar array doesn't uh, give us enough power or if it's a cloudy day we often supplement the the battery capacity with the generator um which is not great like we're burning gas for that and and i i'd rather not do that if we have a renewable energy source like wind available hmm. i've been thinking as well about uh, in the longer term the advantages and disadvantages of nuclear power on the martian surface obviously the the problem is uh getting rid of waste heat that's the the major deal with the with the nuclear power station. So uh... that really wouldn't be a problem though on Mars. Like you could just vent the heat out. I mean, Mars is very cold all all day long. The, the the warmest it ever gets on Mars is still almost below freezing. So I don't think waste heat's a real issue on Mars. Certainly it is on Earth, but uh, well, I mean, you you can't really conduct it away. So you have to you have to have a waste heat radiator. If you're radiating away waste heat at room temperature, you get maybe what, like 450 watts per square meter. But this is the thing. Sam uh, from, uh, from, from Nexus Aurora, he proposes hot housing. So uh, just uh, heating up the air in like a, a large farm habitat. Mm. And then, you know, if you have like a square kilometer worth of farm habitat, you, 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 you heat it up by a few extra degrees and you, uh, you, you're able to tune the insulation so that, yeah. God forbid, the reactor goes off, you could shut it off so that, you know, the, the plants don't freeze yeah, to death. It's, it's the, the waste heat is just an input to another system. Yeah, that's, yeah. Sam's thinking like a Martian now. <laughs> yeah, that's very clever. Yes, that, that's, that's a good way of doing it. I like hot housing. Alternatively, I, I'm, I, I think more and more about beaming energy down from space using a microwave array. If the city's big enough, it's not so hard to do. Now, obviously, at the, at the smaller scales, you get so many difficulties involved with actually beaming power. But in the case of Mars, you know, a geostationary orbit or a Mars stationary orbit is much closer than geostationary orbit on Earth. So power beaming makes more sense there. Uh, and also, you have no, basically no atmosphere. Very little gets in the way of the microwaves, whereas on Earth, you have one. And so uh, a lot of the complication, or oh, there's no birds as well. That's, I, I don't like uh, space, space based power, like power satellites and so on for Earth, because you fry the birds and that's right. not good. You, you don't want to fry the birds, but there are no birds on Mars. 
So it's like, and, and everyone who goes outside has uh, you know, can, can have built into their suits basically a Faraday cage so that they're completely protected. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Faraday cage doubles as a, a means for um, receiving and then sending uh, radio communications. So, mm-hmm. so much the better. Right? So uh, it seems to be much better fit for the, the, the Martian surface. Although, yes, a, uh, a nuclear reactor is, a, is another way of doing things. And of course, if you hothouse, then there's not really that much of a big deal with, uh, with, with getting, getting rid of the, the waste heat from there. Nonetheless, have, have you considered things like uh, uh, sodium sulfur batteries as a way of, uh, like, maybe they make more sense on the Martian surface, I suppose, but, you know, simulating that, perhaps you use just uh, car batteries or something like this, but the, uh, the, the, the power-to-weight ratio that you get, or at least, at least the, maybe the power-to-volume ratio, certainly, for sodium sulfur batteries is quite impressive. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really quite robust, and you can make them from easily available material on the Martian surface. You know, I, I I wonder about things like this as well, like making sure that there is a, a baseline power available. I still think beaming it from space is a uh, a, a good solution here. But having you know, if you have nuclear reactors as well, I, probably with a nuclear reactor, what you've really got is uh, you, you don't have to use electricity now. You can you have a hot uh, a, a good source of high quality heat. There are a lot of industrial processes which you can use that for directly. So I suppose you know there's uh, there's multiple angles to come from. Yes. Here. No, I, the, the, the sodium sulfur battery, we have not tried that. That does sound like an interesting experiment. We have a lot of the components of our power system are commercial components and the, the ostensibly for reliability and understanding how they work versus just an experimental thing. Someone's designed and built and then, you know, the rest of us have to maintain when they're gone. That would be undesirable. But, but as an experiment for a crew to try out, that, that would be great. We actually want to make more upgrades to the power system we have and possibly using like Tesla power walls or some other large battery system um, that we're not doing today. What we have today is essentially a bunch of car sized batteries that are in clusters um, to give us the, I think it's 15 kilowatt hour capacity, something like that. So, um, so yeah, that's, there's definitely opportunities for us to do more with power. And to get to the point where it's a system that's flawless and 24-7 uh, capacity. And the, also, the other thing is a smart grid. So having the power system detect when large loads are coming onto it and leaving it and, and, and acting accordingly, that was, some, that was some work that our crew engineer wanted to do, um, but, but had limitations um, with, with, with the technology we had there. You know, we, the Algocraft experiment was something that drew a lot of power, and, but it could also be run at, at, at 50% quite easily and for long periods. So that's what we would do. And we would do that at night, run it at 50% when the solar array wasn't producing power and go back up to 100 midday when it was. So having everything in the campus be on a smart grid would be a, a long-term goal as well. And, and you know, because because it really would be about not just having the power available, but using it smartly, conserving power when you could. And I don't think enough work's been done on that uh, overall. Mm. Yeah, especially in the short term, where well, generating generating solar electricity on the Martian surface is actually quite uh, annoying at scale. So especially you know, if you need enough to make rocket fuel, this is a major right. problem. 
So I can I can see the the sense in uh, in being as efficient as possible with the electricity that you have. Yeah, there's no way a, a setup like ours, and, and ours is pretty big. Like our solar array is pretty large. It's I believe 20 feet long by five feet wide. Uh, it's it's out there on the next to the science dome, and it's huge. Um, even a system that big and having all the batteries and the inverter and all the, all the other gear. Yeah, you could not do industrial scale processes with that. That is for a small crew and it barely is enough for a small crew. Um, it definitely needs the, genera- the diesel generator as backup. And we did use the diesel generator, um, not every day, but most days we had it running for partial part of the day. So yeah, that's, that's not adequate for an industrial grade, you know, ISRU load where you're producing methane fuel for the rocket ship to go back to earth or you're producing large scales of oxygen and hydrogen for use by the by, by the crew long term but also maybe for use by plants um yeah that you you need in my opinion a, a mars settlement needs a nuclear reactor or technology similar to that 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 would give us the load the capacity to have those loads yeah absolutely a uh, little bit of a side uh, a, a side note, but this is this is uh, more my sort of area of expertise. Do you, or well, my area of interest? Do you have particular uh, types of nuclear reactors that you prefer over others? Yeah, there's one called Krusty that David Poston from Los Alamos has been working on for years now. He spoke at our conference multiple times about the project, and now he's commercializing it with a new company called SpaceNukes.com. But that 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 reactor is meant for a human settlement. Um, I don't remember the capacity off the top of my head, but it's essentially a small nuclear reactor that you could transport to Mars. And you could have, you probably have like two of them, like you'd have a backup and that would give you the power that you would need for a small settlement. Yes. I think that's a, so that's a solid state one, isn't it? So uh, completely moderated by, is it graphite? Something? So- I believe so. Yeah. You guys, you can look it up and all, all that information is publicly available with his conference talks on our YouTube channel and his own website. Yes, uh, uh, I see the the benefits, especially for simplicity for that kind of approach. I'm more a uh, a molten salt fan myself, but I, I I see the the benefits for a solid state system, especially for starting out, right? Uh, but then eventually, like uh, perhaps perhaps moving on to a fast breeder or something like this, uh, like a molten chloride fast breeder, uh, gives better opportunities for making more making more fissile material to make more reactors, like in in the in the longer term. Uh, the other thing, actually, going to, well, I mean, th- th- there's a nice segue here. Uh, obviously, in the case of a nuclear reactor, especially on the Martian surface, there's almost no danger uh, to, to to astronauts. You just put it a long way away from them, and then you know you're, you're isolated uh, by by distance, but also now uh, potentially by you know you put put a put a dune in the way, and perhaps there's maybe like uh, 20 meters of soil that'll stop anything from getting right. through. And uh, if, the, if, if you, you know, e- even in the worst case scenario, which is uh, extremely unlikely, in fact, in the case of a molten salt reactor, ba- technically impossible, of like a, you know, like a containment breach or something like this, and you have radioactive material thrown around, if you don't breathe it in, there's not really any danger from that either. But there is residual radiation or a, a background radiation that, uh, that is likely to plague Martian astronauts uh, if they're living on the surface, certainly, unless they go for lava tubes. Or you know, like um, throwing up enormous amounts of material over uh, domes or other structures right. that they build. Uh, and another part of the mission at MDRS that you you've just come back from 
was uh, l- looking at the, the conclusions for the results was health related yes. and uh, systems for, for finding uh, how, you know, like, for, for monitoring the, the health of astronauts yes. and so on. Could you talk a bit about that? Um, there were two experiments that our HSO medical officer, Audrey, would, was working on. They were around cardiovascular aging um, and, and the health of the crew cardiovascular systems um, using pulse waves, which is a new approach in medicine to measure that. And so she had a prototype device that her colleague at the University of Paris designed that would, um, she had a, it was essentially a USB device plugged into her laptop and it had uh, an electrode on that we would put a clip to a finger and another one to clip to a toe and it would send pulse waves through our body. So we'd be laying down when she would run this. It would only take a few seconds to work and it could very accurately measure our cardiovascular aging and so, and it would give us a metric, a number. Like I remember mine was 7.5 a lot, which was good. Um, and so, that was really cool. That was a really innovative experiment because she's essentially testing a new type of medical device that's not available on the market anywhere in the world um, and, and seemed very effective and very easy to use. Um, and then the other one was she has developed a way working with my exo Aline Ducati working together. They've developed a way to take blood and urine samples from astronauts and put them on these little dry cards. So you kind of use a dropper and put the urine on the card and it would go into the card and you fold it up and you'd basically have this urine sample or blood sample that was shelf stable for like months. So you could be taking your own urine or blood or that of a crew member on Mars and capture all these samples that, they, that could then be analyzed later when you're back on Earth, you know, and had a, had a lab available. Um, but that, that was a new innovative technology. It sounds simple, but this isn't done in the medical community, to my knowledge, uh, or at least it's not done widely in the astronaut with the astronauts. So, so yeah, those were the two experiments, and um, yeah, very interesting work. And you know, it's in our research report, and we'll be also doing other things to publish that as time goes on. Yes, actually, yeah, uh, taking continuing samples of, uh, uh, of, for instance, blood, you know. There's very little involved if it's just a, a right. small drop, but uh, you know, uh, uh, if you're able to catalog those and then send them back, uh, you know it's, it's only a small amount of mass now with uh, more sophisticated analytical equipment on on Earth. Now you can uh, you can do much more like much greater experiments. Uh, use use the wealth of data that this generates in ways that perhaps are not practical on the Martian yeah, exactly. surface. So I, I I can see how that I can see the long term application of that. Yeah, it was great. And the specific thing I should mention that that she was measuring was our our was our the effect of caffeine on our bodies. Which for my my exo and I like we love our morning cup of coffee. In fact, we drink coffee all day long. And so um, we went through the experience in sim of not having coffee for the day before, then getting taking these samples, having some coffee, and having you know having it affect us you know and and taking samples along the, that day um and and so we did that we all did that and they're all analyzing you know audrey and her colleagues back at the university now are analyzing that data and i've gotten an early report that all the data is excellent we, we did the job of capturing it well and they're very excited and they, they're pouring through it now 
but yeah, to your point, like this is a great approach if you needed to measure a crew member's health long term you can actually take these shelf-stable blood and urine samples that can later be analyzed, and they're very easy to transport and handle, and they're not toxic in any way because you're basically putting the blood and the urine on a card and then folding up you know, the card into... The way the card was designed, it sort of had flaps, and you could fold, it up, fold the flaps over. So you're left with this business card size of paper that's very thick, and the sample's inside it, and you can't touch it or see it. And so you can, we would just basically have a whole stack of these and you put that in a Ziploc bag and there's, you know, a week's worth of samples for one crew member in a very small package. Very, very innovative compared to how typically you do blood and urine samples in a lab today, routinely with healthcare. You know, that it's, there's a lot of packaging, there's a lot of waste, medical waste generated by that. And it's just kind of impractical. It's impractical to do that in space. You know, we're in a zero G environment where that, whereas this, you could, you know, cause you could do, you could do your business with the urine or the, or the blood pricking your finger and then you just touch it to the card and you're done, you know? So it's really, really simple to use and do. Yes. Now, of course, th this works well for uh, long-term studies on the effects of astronaut health that you can do after a mission is complete. But as far as uh, monitoring astronaut health while you're actually there, presumably this requires a lot more. Uh, equipment and so on. Is there, uh, is there, are there any, are there any plans to monitor astronauts' health continuing? Yes. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the pulse wave system. Yeah, she had the pulse wave system. She also had a regular blood pressure cuff that was pretty fancy, that would take three different blood pressure readings and average them and save them to the to the cloud, all all within the device. And I, yeah, absolutely, you would have all kinds of stuff like that on Mars. You would have easy ways to monitor the crew's health. That, that, that were cloud enabled, that the results would immediately be, be available and, and immediately be able to be sent back to Earth and be available with the comms delay of 14 or so minutes back on Earth. And, and, and that actually happened. Like I, I have hypertension. And so my blood pressure readings on some days were kind of high because we were dealing with some stressful situations, especially early on in the mission. And uh, Audrey and her colleagues were able to give me some advice about like when to take my medicine and which medicines of the two I had I should be taking. Um, and that was really useful for me uh, on our mission, on our short, small Mars mission of two weeks. Like I could see that being invaluable on a longer mission. And uh, we were able to do that kind of stuff relatively easily. Yeah. Also, it, it strikes me that, I mean, the, the, there's a potential perhaps for many aspects of human health to use uh, camera footage or, or, or just pictures because, you know, like uh, uh, changes, changes, in, changes in eye color. Well, I mean, that's, that's quite extreme, but, you know, like cha changes in uh, sudden rashes and things like this, maybe, you know, like uh, artifacts on your nails, et cetera. Uh, all of these can indicate, you know, uh, uh, vitamin deficiencies or otherwise uh, new prevailing conditions uh, that, that you'd be able to pick up without any extra equipment. Perhaps if you're if you're uh, if you're creative, there might be I, you know it strikes me that there might be simple things like this that you could do that actually uh, you know correspond to enormous potential for diagnosing problems as they emerge for astronauts without having to take large amounts of equipment. Obviously, if you're doing blood work and so on, as you mentioned, you know typically this requires large amounts of, uh, of fluid to be taken, 
and like a whole suite of experiments and so on, like a whole suite of, of equipment that, you know, it's going to be very difficult right. to bring that to the Martian surface. But the health of the astronauts has to be constantly, uh, uh, yeah. constantly monitored because if something suddenly goes wrong, it's very difficult to do open heart surgery in, 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 with the kind of equipment you could put in like a six man capsule, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, the, 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 the crew that goes to Mars needs to be in, in excellent health and excellent shape and heavily monitored for the reasons you just talked about. Because if they're together for 18 months on the surface of Mars and away from Earth end to end for a three year mission there and back with, with chemical propulsion, yeah, like medical concerns are, are critical and um, monitoring the health and the safety of the astronauts is also critical. And so, you, yeah, we would, need, we would need the best gear and capabilities to do that. It's interesting, actually, that even in this sphere, crowdsourcing perhaps with, with doctors might do the same sorts of, might, might have the same sort of ability to, uh, to, to massively impact the performance of a, uh, a diagnostic system for, for, for medical applications as crowdsourcing, say, geological problems might have with the, uh, the, the VR system that you mentioned earlier. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. In which case, actually, I think we, we've gone over more or less uh, all, the, all the major experiments that were done, actually, that are, that, that are listed out. Although I will note that uh, the, the journalist project, yes. the, the artistic project, uh, perhaps also bears, uh, bears discussion as well. I think there's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of scope for engaging with the public uh, more, more effectively in, in, in these terms. Like I, I keep thinking sometimes like with, the, with regards to art and uh, the aesthetic of like a Martian colony, uh, because what was it? Elon, Elon points this out. He says, uh, when, when people were saying uh, that perhaps the, uh, the, the Tesla roadster that he sent up with, with uh, I, I, th I think, um, was, that with, was that with Falcon? Yeah, there we go. With Falcon Heavy, of course. Uh, they said it with fucking heavy that some people were saying, well, you know, is it fake? It looks a bit fake. He's like, uh, well, you know, it's not fake because if I was faking it, I'd make it look a lot better. See, in space, there's no um, uh, atmospheric occlusion or anything like this, right? Uh, so, or am yeah, atmospheric occlusion. Yeah, you said it right. There we go. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, you know the the, um, the the sorts of things that make an epic scene look epic if you're if you're painting it on Earth um, or, or or taking a picture of it and so on. They don't exist in space, and so everything sort of looks uh, a little bit too crisp, and you know you have no no uh, no no easy way to identify sort of depth, how far away things are, so that uh, and especially you you combine that with the sorts of colors that prevail being very different to the ones that we're used to. That you know the, the human eye is very good at discerning uh, different shades of green, but there's not much green in space. There's plenty of in the case of Mars, you know, like uh, rust red, but other other uh, you know like, like orangey type colors and so on. Uh, it's it, it's not native to the the human eye, and so uh, you know, like the, there's a potential for it not to uh, not to have the same the same sort of visual impact that it ought to have and that it must have as this stuff becomes fashionable mm -hmm. as we make it fashionable. So, like, I, I'm interested on uh, I'm interested in how to how to communicate properly the uh, the the vision for what a Mars settlement ought to look like, what color schemes work, for instance, and this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, for us, first of all, Chris Davidson was our crew journalist, and Chris is one of the best, if not the best journalist I've ever worked with. She was fantastic. She's an artist. Her photojournalism was amazing. Her, her daily narratives were amazing. 
Um, I highly recommend everyone reads her daily journalist report. She wrote 12 of them. They're very epic and moving. Um, she ties in what we did that day, but she ties in with these ma amazing themes of humanity and exploration and the future and deep time. And deep time is a concept of that she's really working with in her work as an artist and a journalist of, you know, a place, but the place over several hundred or thousand years and how it changes. Um, and so she did some work with that area of Utah and, you know, we have dinosaur finds out there. Um, you know, we actually found a dinosaur discovery on crew number one at MDRS, which by the way, was in a place where a rover could never have gone. Um, and it turned into a major dinosaur dig site just north of the station. It's called the Hanksville Burpee Quarry. And they've pulled, I think, nine intact dinosaurs out of there in the last 15 years. But, um, but that's just an aside. Like that, there's a lot of um, storytelling to be done at, with the MDRS and with the work we did at our crew. And she did a fantastic job. But going back to your points about light and color, um, we found that the light was great for photos at dawn and dusk, better than midday. So we often did some of our photo shoots when we had our, like when we did our um, publicity photos of the full crew or individual crew members wearing suits. We often did those at dawn and dusk um, because of the favorable lighting conditions. And she also did a lot of thinking through of how to you know, how to tell us, tell, tell some of our stories with photography. And, and, I, and I definitely invite everyone to check out the work she, that she submitted every day. And it's not over. She's going to do more. Um, she told us that she's going to try to get some of us in museums as, a, as like a museum exhibit of deep time and Mars analog and science and, you know, concepts that would be appealing to museum directors around the world. Um, she's working on that next. And so I can't wait to see what she does. Yes. Um, excellent. I, again, like the, no one thinks about innovations in this sphere, but it's essential for selling the vision yes. of Mars. Obviously I'm preaching to the converted and presumably if you're listening to this podcast, you're on the same page that we are, but if you can't make Mars look good, if you can't make the idea of a Mars colony look good, if you can't fix in people's minds, like the, um, uh, the aesthetics of a new civilization. Yeah. It, it just won't happen. I couldn't agree more, Phil. And Mar you mentioned marketing earlier on the podcast. In general, the space community is very bad at marketing. And that's what I'm, as executive director of the Mars Society, I am trying to improve our marketing. I, I spend a lot of time on that. We have a group of volunteers now that's helping us with marketing. And we're, we're just getting started with some of the amazing campaigns we're going to do this year. Um, but, but, but it is a, it is definitely something that I think we struggle with in space of telling the story of the benefits of why explore space, you know, wh why explore space and not spend that money on earth is a common question or a common, um, objection to what we do. And there's so many ways to answer that question in a positive way. I mean, for one, if we can ex understand how Mars, how it was once warm and wet, and now is a desert planet, and how Venus is, has a runaway greenhouse effect. If we can understand those things, we can understand better how the Earth works and prevent that from happening to Earth, which is in all of humanity's best interest. But also, you know, as you say, people, you know, when I started doing space advocacy with the Mars Society in the late 90s, 
Um, the idea of sending a crew to Mars, a human crew to Mars, was science fiction. It was not going to happen for 50 years or longer. And that's what everyone said. That's what people on NASA said. But now people know with the movies like The Martian and um, TV shows like The Expanse and For All Mankind, people can see that this is not science fiction. This is humans have the capability to do this today. And like, why aren't we? Like, like that's, that's, the, that's really the question. And the, the answer is marketing. The answer is we haven't done a good job of marketing because we haven't created the political will to go to Mars. And, and we're, but we're working on it and we're getting there. And I think it's almost, we're almost going to, I mean, I, I believe we're going to be on Mars in the next five to 10 years. And that's the path we're on. That's the path we're on. And SpaceX's Starship is the vehicle that will get us there. I, I think so too. Technically, like looking at the technical problems, especially as far as they pertain to getting a small number of people to the Martian surface for the purposes of exploration and so on, uh, nothing is insurmountable. And it's all things essentially that have been demonstrated either in the lab or else actually demonstrated in the field. We, we landed on the moon. We've landed on the moon multiple exactly. times. It's not that different. And so if we could land on the moon, we can land on Mars. And we... The, the, with the technology there, then uh, the the next question becomes like lacking a better way of way of putting it. Uh, how do you make Mars sexy, right? Like how do you? Um, the the trouble with th films like The Martian, uh, you know, it's it's a it's it's more or less a disaster movie. Occasionally, you have very nice soundtracks, uh, evocative soundtrack with the you know the 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 rover moving across the Martian surface. Mild spoiler, by the way, but I'm presuming that everyone's seen it. My crew's definitely seen it. We watched it the one of the first nights we were there. And it was a very inspiring movie for us. I, course, I've only right. watched it a few times because I save it up, you know, uh, for moments like that. And uh, but no, you're right. Like, how do you make Mars sexy? Well, I mean, I, I can give you a couple answers there. You know, go, going to Mars for the science to make that phrase more appealing. It's we're going to we're going to solve one of the questions that humanity has been struggling with for thousands of years. Are we alone in the universe? We have it within our capability in our time to answer a question that the ancient Greeks and Romans and other civilizations wanted to answer but couldn't. We can answer that by going to Mars and finding evidence of past life or even present life in the water table. And in my opinion, that is highly likely to be there because Mars was a warm and wet planet before the Earth. And it was a warm and wet planet when life arose on Earth. And it could be that Mars, that Mars actually is where life arose in, originally in our solar system. And then it migrated to Earth because that happens. There's a lot of interchange with asteroid impacts. And so um, that's, that, that, is, that is the number one reason, in my opinion, to go explore Mars with people is to answer, are we alone in the universe? And, if we, and there would be tremendous scientific discoveries if we found life on Mars. Because we could look at the life on Mars and compare it with life on Earth and see the similarities and differences. And in the lab here on Earth, like there's microbiologists like Dr. Stephen Benner that's spoken at our conference. And he's created DNA in the lab that doesn't exist in nature, but using the same processes that nature used. So the way life arose on Earth is not the only way DNA and RNA could have arose. Um, and, and so it's highly interesting to go to Mars and find out what what life was like there even if it's not even if it's not present life it could be past life that we find how did that differ from earth and and what does that tell us about the vast tapestry of life but also if we go to mars and we don't find life 
that is also a major discovery and shows how precious the human race is alone in the universe. We are the, we are the ones that are alive and the other creatures of earth. And then is it our duty then to preserve that life by exploring space and building other biospheres that earth life could live in? Right. That's a, that's also a profound question of humanity that in our time we can answer. Unlike the ancient Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and other civilizations that are lost to history. Yes, I, which is immensely compelling, of course. Uh, the now I'll, I'll add as a caveat, uh, it's also potentially scary. This is the this is the major thing. See, I I, I just I despair at the direction that science fiction has gone in the last few years especially uh, medium science fiction, some, some aspects of hard science fiction, but sort of the, the middle ground has yeah. it, it's gone to some very dark places. So the question naturally arises, what if you, what if you do find life there? Uh, how, how do you then answer the Fermi paradox? I, I, are you suggesting that life just appears almost, almost everywhere in the galaxy, but none of it gets to be uh, technological in the sense that we intend to be technological, yeah. technological say, in the next thousand years? I, you know, like, it's a fascinating question. Like, why? Yeah, the, like where the the famous Richard Feynman question: Where are they? Right? Where's where's all where are all the aliens? They should be everywhere. Yeah. If if we're a young civilization and there's been older ones out there, they should have contacted us by now. Why are, why haven't they? Does it mean that they they found their own technological gremlins that wiped them out? Like nuclear war would be for us, or AI? I mean, I I personally don't think that AI is going to wipe us out. I think AI is a, a tool and we're going to be the masters of that tool as human beings and it's going to enhance humanity. Um, that's my belief, but um, I, I totally get that it is a risk for the existence of humans to have AI. Um, and, and, you know, and, and if aliens are, if, if higher beings or, or, or more technological civilizations are out there, you know, that's a risk to the humanity too. But there's the vast distances you know, between stars, I think would prevent, you know, the movie Independence Day happening uh, in real life. But more than this, sort of, I, the the potential dangers uh, and the, the the potential bad news <laughs> that you just mentioned that, that that it's possible for us to find. You know, it strikes me that seventy or eighty years ago, in science fiction, someone discovers something like this and it doesn't phase them. Uh, they 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 they're happy to face the future, whatever it is, courageously. And there's there's a belief. There was a belief at the time expressed in in our culture that we can fix yeah. whatever problem we're presented with. Or you know, the other species go extinct. Well, we'll be the exception. Of course, we can be the exception because you know the the there's there's no cap on on the the limits of human ability. That's really what I want Mars to do for us again. Like I see I see a lot of. Um, uh, a, a lot of yes. a lot of doom and gloom in the in the modern world. A lot of people who have lost faith in uh, in, in what we can do. I completely agree. There, there's a lot of people that have lost faith in a positive human future and latch on to the negative risks yeah. and some of the ones we talked about, but others like the environment and climate change. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you though. I, I, I think that human beings are very resilient creatures, very innovative. And we can solve any problem that we understand. And it's, it's all about understanding what the problem is and, and working the problem. And I, I have full faith in the ability of humanity to encounter and defeat whatever problems we, that arise. 
See, this is this is what I this is what I want from a Mars colony. A group of maybe say a hundred thousand people who think like this, who think like us. Oh, I, I'm hoping that, uh, that 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 I could say this. Maybe but I, I don't think I, I'm I'm quite suited to be a, a, an astronaut, but who who have this kind of mindset? People who who can be on Mars and then who when when they'll be in a natural position to actually see the truth of these things, to discover whether or not there is actual life, and if they do discover whether there's life, uh, looking at that will tell us a great deal about our place in the universe, as, as you have said. Uh, if if they can if they can face that courageously, I, I think that might be enough to uh, to steer the rest of humanity because they're naturally at the cutting edge. If you're living on Mars, you are at the cutting edge of uh, uh, human endeavor. Certainly, of human endeavor as it is currently envisaged by Western technological civilization. It's not the only kind of civilization, nor is it the only kind of endeavor. But to the extent that this is the dream. Of uh, you know the industries that have been put together over the last few hundred years, the culmination of that dream, going to another world and starting a new civilization, they would be the cutting edge by definition. And if they have a brave face, that might be sufficient to pull humanity out of its current rut. Well, you know, which is not that's that's not something uh, something easily tangible. It's not something you can convert into you know number of uh, uh, num- right. number of kilowatts generated per you know. Number of kilowatts that you can get out of a, a power system, or you know, a num- number of tons of um, of semiconductor yeah. manufactured, or something like this. It's an intangible thing, but I think it's probably more crucial than any of the technical things we could manage still to get from any kind of colonization effort in the solar system. Just having that yeah. and having it come naturally, as I think it can, just from ha- just from getting together the sorts of people who would be okay with going on a rocket with, you know, like uh, three and a half thousand tons of propellant underneath them. Well, actually, in the case of Starship, I think it's close to 5,000 when the whole thing is for both stages, right? Uh, you know, who, who could do that and uh, put themselves through it and actually turn up on the day in a spacesuit and sit down, strap in yep. and uh, say, well, let's do this with a brave face. If you can do that, you can, be, you can be at the cutting edge. And then that brave face might be infectious enough that everyone else sees it and we can we can lead humanity to a better future. I mean, if we direct the future of humanity for the next thousand years, and it's a good future rather than a bad one, then there's no amount of effort right. or money that's uh, that this isn't worth pursuing with. There's no no amount of resources that it's not worth putting straight into this. Which is why I'm so dedicated to this kind of thing. Absolutely, me too. I mean, I think you've eloquently talked about what our movement stands for. Is we're trying to be innovative and solve problems and lead humanity forward into a positive future and doing it by exploring Mars, but, but using the best of human inventions, ingenuity, technology, processes, working together, communication, you know, being diverse, having all of humanity represented with what we do, you know, having, giving an opportunity to young people all around the world to be part of our movement. That's what the Mars Society stands for. And I hope that we're accurately capturing the soul of that future Martian civilization that, as you described, will lead humanity forward into our exploration of the cosmos. Exactly so. Uh, it's been fantastic talking with you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm hoping that in the future it might be possible again for uh, NA and uh, the Mars Society, perhaps BIS and other organizations, if you're listening in, 
uh, for us to work closer together. Like, it really feels like we're all on the same team here. And there's so much we could do if we work closer together in the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'd love to collaborate with Nexus Aurora and with BIS and other like-minded groups. And that's what we're all about at the Mars Society is working together internationally to get humans to Mars. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, hopefully we can have you back in the future if you, if you have any time to spare for us. I'd love that. Thanks again. Thank you so much.